This is the Water Cooler Podcast, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. Hello and welcome to the Water Cooler Podcast. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of Menzies Research Centre. We're living, it appears, in a new Cold War in which the values we cherish are once again clashing with the ideology of communism and the ambitions of a powerful weaponized autocracy. My next guest found himself at the front line of the last Cold War, packing bullets for President Ronald Reagan, for whom he wrote speeches. I, for my sins, was working at the time in Britain as a producer for BBC News, and I well remember watching the footage come in of a particular salvo delivered from Berlin on June 12, 1987. Mr Gorbachev... Tear down this wall. Well, the man responsible for those memorable lines joins me today from Northern California. Peter Robinson, welcome to Watercooler. Nick, a pleasure to join you. And I'll just complete your biography before we go on. You're now a Murdoch Fellow at the Hoover Institution based at the University of Stanford University, host of the interview show Uncommon Knowledge, author of How Ronald Reagan Changed My Life, A Republican's Messy Love Affair with the GOP. I suspect there's a few people in that basket right now. And co-founder of the Ricochet website and a presenter of the Ricochet podcast with Rob Long, who we had on this uh, water cooler uh, webcast recently, and uh, James Lilacs from Minneapolis. Well, Peter, uh, let's get on to the Cold War and uh, your role in it. Um, what do you remember of that speech, that, uh, that famous speech, you know, Mr Gorbachev, tear down this wall? Oh, well, <laughs> what I remember about the speech is that it was the subject of a huge fight within the Reagan administration. The, I went to Berlin, West Berlin, as, it, as we all called it then, to do research. I I went to the wall where the president would speak. I took a helicopter flight over the wall and a U.S. Army helicopter staying just inside the border of West Berlin so that I could see the wall. And I visited an American diplomat, the ranking American diplomat in West Berlin, who said, who was all full of ideas about what Ronald Reagan should not say. Don't have him sound like an anti-communist, no Soviet bashing, we're these people are live deep inside. They're surrounded by East Germany, so they understand the nuance and subtlety required in East-West relations. And don't, don't make a big deal about the wall. They've gotten used to it by now. And in the evening, I broke away from the American party and went to a, a West Berlin residential suburb where people I had never met, we had friends in common in Washington, put on a dinner party for me so I could meet some West Berliners. And I asked, I I explained to them what had happened, that I'd seen the wall with my own eyes, the guard towers, the dog runs, and then I'd had an American diplomat tell me that they'd gotten used to it. Was that true? And there was a moment of silence. And then one man pointed and said, my sister lives just a few kilometers in that direction, but I haven't seen her in more than 20 years. How do you think we feel about the wall? And then they started talking. They had stopped talking about the wall It had been there for more than two decades, but they hadn't stopped hating it. And our hostess, lovely woman called Ingeborg Eltz, who just died a couple of years ago, said, if this man Gorbachev is serious with this talk, glasnost perestroika, he can prove it by coming here and getting rid of the wall. I went back to Washington, made that the central, made the call to tear down the wall, the central component in the speech, 
it went to the president. We had a, we speechwriters had a meeting with the president and he singled out that passage about tearing down the wall as something he especially wanted to say. That wall has to come down. That's, that's what I want to say. And then it went out to staffing. And for the three weeks from the moment it went out to staffing until the moment the president delivered the speech, the state department and the national security council opposed it. They said it, would, it was naive, it would raise false expectations, it would put Gorbachev himself in an awkward position, and they began submitting one alternative draft after another, all omitting the call to tear down the wall. And finally, I was not part of the traveling party that went back to Europe when the president delivered the speech, but I heard, of course, afterwards what happened, and the deputy chief of staff, a man called Ken Duberstein, decided he had no choice but to take the matter back to the president. So Ken Duberstein sat down with Ronald Reagan and told him about the objections from the State Department and the National Security Council, handed him the speech to have him read that central passage again, and then they talked about it. And then there came a moment when Ronald Reagan, Ken told me you could see the president got that twinkle. I don't know, you and I remember this, Nick. I don't know how many of our listeners will remember Ronald Reagan, but that, that amused twinkle and he said to Ken Duberstein, now, I'm the president, aren't I? And Ken Duberstein said, yes, sir, we're clear about that much. So I get to decide whether that line stays in. Yes, sir, it is your decision. Well, then, it stays in. And that's what I remember about that speech. It was the fight. I, I wouldn't have written it for anybody but Ronald Reagan, and nobody but Ronald Reagan would have delivered it. That's what I remember. The fact that there was a, that opposition from the State Department, you know, in part, I guess, because they didn't want to, you know, upset uh, Gorbachev, and uh, that reticency to stand up for our values and and to say what we think, you you see that all the time now, of course, with the uh, the new Cold War or perhaps the extension extension of the old one with China. Here in Silicon Valley, this has been a concern among some of us for a number of years now, and. I talked with, I, I, this goes back a number of years ago, I talked with um, a leading investor whose name you would probably know, but I'd better not mention it because I haven't asked for permission to tell this story. In any event, he had thought of bringing together a room full of CEOs, founders, and so forth to discuss the problem with China. And the problem with China was obvious. Everybody knew it. They were stealing the technology as fast as they could. And he discovered that none of them wanted to do that. He thought, I'll, 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 get, I'll take a hotel uh, off, a, off in Napa Valley, someplace relatively remote, and we can spend a weekend there, just us. No press, no staff, just us talking about it. Nobody would do it because they knew what would happen. They would be accused of anti-Asian racism. Now, that was a single-digit number of years ago. And what has changed since? Along comes Donald Trump, of course, who... <laughs> whatever his faults, he has this virtue. He's not afraid to state what he considers the truth. So you've got Donald Trump willing to stand up to China. And then, Nick, you will remember uh, there's the moment Ronald Reagan's elected, he becomes president. And the polls after, what was it, 15 years or so, uh, Nixon, Ford, Carter of detente and coexistence, 
the polls indicated that the American people had ceased to view the Soviet Union as a danger or a threat. I'm overstating it, but the American people themselves felt friendlier or less threatened by the Soviet Union than they had, say, in the 50s and 60s. And what happened was, of course, Ronald Reagan gets elected, and then the Soviets shot down that Korean airliner, KAL-007, and the polls turned overnight. There was one act of brutality that revealed what the Soviets were like. And in my judgment, the way the Chinese have handled this coronavirus, uh, apparent, uh, for a while, we thought they may have developed it in a lab, and then that information all got poo-pooed, and apparently now there's new evidence that some, there may have been some laboratory involved. Set all of that aside, what's on the record is that President Xi knew he had a problem on his hands in Wuhan. The Chinese were aware of the virus, and indeed they shut down internal flights from Wuhan to other places in China, but permitted flights internationally from Wuhan to Europe and this country. All right. I have the feeling that this is one of those moments where everyone, again, you'll have to fill me in on public opinion in Australia, and of course you live right there in the Pacific, so it's, it, is, it is what you see when you look out your window. There is China and Chinese influence. We feel in some ways insulated. We're a long way away. But this is one of those moments where everybody, and I believe it is also bipartisan. If Donald Trump loses and Joe Biden wins, the United States will still feel mobilized to pull itself together and think through how to stand up to China. Well, let's hope so. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Opinion in this country has changed quite dramatically. We sell a lot of iron ore to China. We make a lot of money that way. And um, the proprietors of those companies or the people working were reluctant to say anything about China and, and still are. But I think everybody now has come to the almost everybody to the realisation that China's a problem. But the, the, the point about this is, Peter, it's values, isn't it? We, we, and, and what was worrying me for a long time, even before this blew up this year, was that we didn't seem to be prepared to talk about this in terms of values, in the way that uh, FDR, Winston Churchill and, and the great Robert Menzies would have done. They, they saw World War II, and the Cold War for that matter, as a, a fight for freedom. We, we don't sort of think about it in those terms, and that worries me. Mm, mm. I couldn't agree more. Of course, here, again, I mentioned my own, well, it's normal. I, my experience is what my experience is. I live where I live. I live in the middle of Silicon Valley. And, uh, and I work at the Hoover Institution, which as you noted is a component, it's located at Stanford University. So I look around and here's what I see. The, uh, three, three aspects of this current conflict that make it, I believe, I believe we're in for a, a more difficult time than we were last time around. And here's why. The Chinese have something, one, one of the first of three, the Chinese have something the Soviets never had, cash cash. They have bought up interests in one tech company after another here in Silicon Valley. The, again, this is a few years ago, but one investor said to me, he thought the overall price level in Silicon Valley of startups was inflated by as much as a third because of Chinese money. They're here. They've bought their way in. Two is students. There are hundreds of thousands, literally hundreds of thousands of Chinese nationals studying at American universities, 
with the Soviets, you know, in the old days, we had a ping pong exchange with China and the Soviets uh, 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 was a big deal when a Soviet physicist came and studied for six months in the United States. Hundreds of thousands of Chinese students are studying here. And then the third, of course, is the supply chain question. <clears throat> One American manufacturing company after another, it has complicated supply chains that, inf that reach all the way back to, to China. So we are economically integrated. The educational institutions are integrated. And how, how, we, how we stand up against this and decide with regard to students and we now know there are cases that the FBI has announced a case, someone at Harvard, a, a, a certain American academics have been selling out to the Chinese. Well, of course, you're not, you don't want to send all hundreds of thousands of Chinese students home. Many of them are, many of them, most of them, one hopes, are wonderfully good students, lovely people. I meet them all the time. How do we handle that problem? I did an interview, you mentioned it as we were preparing to start our conference, to record the conversation, Nick. I did an interview recently with the new director of the Hoover Institution, Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State. And her view is that this is one of the principal issues that the Hoover Institution needs to address. Well, of course, we as a country need to address. It's complicated and we need to sort out how. On the Ricochet podcast recently, I think it was James Lilac said that uh, if... Joe Biden was to become president, then the whole country would turn into California. I don't think he meant that in a nice way. I'm afraid he didn't. No, no, no. Um, yep, we are, uh, I sit here in the Golden State, which was, of course, the home of Ronald Reagan, who was twice elected governor, both times by large margins. And I have, here, let me, I pulled together some figures, Nick. Democratic Party registration here in California is at about 46% now. 46% of registered voters re register as Democrats. Here are the, here's the Republican proportion. 1990, 39%. 2000, 35%. 2010, 31%. Today, 24%. California, we can talk about what all of this means in terms of economic policy, the extraordinarily high tax rates, the monolithic political culture, but California has ceased to function as a two-party political system. That incidentally, if I, were, if I were in your magnificent country, that would concern, to, to, to me, the, the, the question of how political cultures, I can come in a moment to the wildfires and the tax rates and all of that, but the underlying question, I'd ask myself if I were you, Nick, and you being you, you've already asked it, I'm sure, in all kinds of ways. If you think of Texas, back in the 1960s, there was a moment, there was a senator called Ralph Yarborough, who represented Texas. And he was a liberal Democrat, not a conservative Democrat, but a liberal Democrat. And then Ann Richards served as governor of Texas. She was a little bit more complicated ideologically, but there were liberal strands in her thinking and in her policies. And Texas became, Texas for decades, a democratic state. Te Texas in the last 25 years or so became a two-party state in which the Republican Party is now dominant. At the same time, California, which used to be competitive. I moved out here in 1993. It was competitive. There was a California, uh, I beg your pardon, a Republican governor, Pete Wilson, 
fiscally very conservative, socially fairly conservative, who'd been elected by a big margin and got reelected. It was a two-party state. And now California has gone in the opposite direction from Texas, becoming a one-party liberal democratic state. And if I were in a country of 20-some million citizens in Australia, I'd be concerned. I'd look at those two models and say, remaining competitive, remaining a competitive two-party, two, re retaining an open, vibrant, lively, and competitive political culture is not guaranteed. I wrote in a column recently that just as the division of Germany was a sort of live experiment in the difference between the old socialism and the new socialism so perhaps what's happening the, the division if you like between california and the rest of the country or specifically i guess between states like texas uh is an experiment in the new uh socialism and it will probably end the same way one would think well that's the question is when by the way you're the, this is all a very sore point for me because as i mentioned i'm at the hoover institution which is a a component or a part of Stanford University, universities don't move. Universities are geographically fixed. So Nick, you're talking to a man who's going to remain a Californian. But if you want to get me started on my friends, I have a friend called Pavel Malachek, who's a Czech immigrant. He started a very successful company here in California. Where does he live today? Wyoming. My friend Joe Lonsdale, a very successful, one of the most important investors here in Northern California for a couple of decades now. Joe has just let his friends know that he's moving to Texas. And if you get me started, I can go on and on and on. Last year was the first year in decades, maybe ever, maybe since records began to be kept, when more people left California than arrived. So bad governance, liberal governance, socialist tendencies, imposing draconian greenhouse gas regulations on energy production leads to rolling brownouts, which we had in this state two weeks ago. Crazy environmental regulations on how you handle forests. The environmentalists don't want us to clear brush. They don't want deadwood cleared away. They don't want fire breaks put in, the, in, in forest areas in the Sierras. And what does that lead to? This summer, we had 83, I believe is the number, wildfires burning on the West Coast, the large majority of those right here in California. Two weeks ago, not quite two weeks ago, there was so much smoke in the air that the, and at a high altitude that the air turned, that the light was orange all day. I felt as though I was in that Matt Damon movie, The Martian, and because I'm a light, lazy man, I haven't hosed my cars off yet, but I could take you out to my driveway. All my cars are covered in ash. It's, it's bad. And we have a governor who's saying this is the result of global warming. Well, I don't know about global warming, but I certainly know about the policies that the various liberal regulatory agencies, the environmentalists have put into place. That result is clear. You're describing the experience we had last summer, last Australian summer, when exactly the same phenomena occurred, including the smoke, including the orange skies, including fire alarms going off all over the city because the smoke had got into them. And uh, it was the end of the world, right? I mean, I think it's got wide coverage, I'm sure. In your yes, country. no, no. I remember reading about or seeing it online as well, yes. Yeah, and, and then um, Justice the Great Bjorn Longborg 
arrived in Australia and, and uh, we uh, took him out for dinner, the rain started to come down and never stopped. So that was the end of that particular apocalypse. We never quite got to the end of it. But there is this apocalyptic think- thinking, isn't there, on the left now. And, and it seems to me that the, the COVID-19 was just a, the perfect replacement for that. You're really, you're touching all my sore points today, Nick, because yes, that's exactly right. Herein, I did an interview, you were kind enough to mention the little program that I do, Uncommon Knowledge, which is an interview program on public policy. I did an interview in June with a man called Scott Atlas, Dr. Scott Atlas, who's a colleague of mine at the Hoover Institution and a friend of many years standing. And Scott made essentially two arguments. It was, he filled me in on what we were learning about the virus. This was June, of course, we, we, still a great deal was uncertain, but he made a couple of points. One was that the public health officials, the Centers for Disease Control, the various governors, Governor Newsom here in California, the, we have county health officials in this country as well, and we have 3,151 counties in the United States. That makes over 3,000 county health officials. And Scott made the point that they were talking only about the benefits of containing the coronavirus by way of a lockdown. That is to say, they were focused entirely on the number of lives they could save and arresting the spread of the virus. And his view was it was a good question whether you could arrest the spread of the virus in any event or whether you could contain it. But in, but in any event, very little attention was being paid to the costs of the lockdown. And we know that every time unemployment ticks up, you get increased opioid abuse, you get increased domestic violence, people report depression at higher rates, even suicides go up, to name one. And then Scott informed me that all kinds of hospitals, were people were afraid to go to the hospital now for routine checkups. Uh, their cancer screenings, their cancer treatment. So there was cost after cost after cost that had not been taken into account. And of course, it is absolutely basic in public policy that you balance benefits against costs. And the public health officials simply were ignoring the costs. His second point was that it was already emerging that children were at very little risk. And there seemed then to be some evidence there's more now that they didn't even pass the virus along very much, but they themselves, even if infected with the virus, were at very little risk. And therefore we ought to open the schools as quickly as we could this fall and protect older teachers or teachers who are in one way or another were at risk. Of course do that, but students need socialization. The way this country is set up, there are free lunch programs. That's often uh, for poorer children. That's often the best nutrition they get all day. We should open schools, all right. And what happened last week, now that Scott got named to President Trump's COVID uh, virus task force, he's become a a national figure and drawn all kinds of attacks from from the lockdown people, from from the public health elite who think that they, the high priesthood, know best and the rest of us should simply do what they tell us to do. And YouTube censored that video, censored that interview with Scott Atlas took it down. So the, the stresses on, on the United States as a result of this lockdown are even working their way into public discourse. Uh, there's censorship taking place now. Just I don't think there's any other word for it, censorship. Yeah. 
I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, you're absolutely right. We've experienced, we've experienced it, here, it here, here too. Here too. Uh, uh, I, I recently I, had a piece taken down, taken from, my down from my Facebook page. page and, uh, and, uh, all I was doing, uh, was, was, linking was linking to a, a very fine article in the Spectator, right? You know, the oldest, I think, the oldest English language. Magazine, Not magazine. did you? Were you linking to Lionel Shriver's piece? Uh, no, I could have done. I was linking to a piece by my wife actually, who'd written about some of the great therapies, some of the great drugs that are now becoming available that aren't, you know, they're not popular, right? Particularly since since your president mentioned one of them. It's just returned to, you know, what's happening in California and how it's become, I, I guess, a sort of morality tale for the rest of the world and, and uh, you know, this great sort of dystopian experiment that's going on. It, it, it seems to me that uh, there's a correlation, correlation's not causation, but there's a correlation between... Uh, the type of government you've got and whether you're into this lockdownism as it's become. It's almost an ideology in itself. That actually is a good point. It has become an ideology in itself, yes. So you get a heavy lockdown, I think, in California. You're obliged to wear masks, I believe. In- yes. I, I'm, I'm not. This is one of the perplexing things. It varies from county to county, and we have dozens of counties in California. I have been driving north from Santa Clara County, where I live, I can't imagine there's a single Australian who cares to hear about California counties, but this is the, this is one of the 10,000 things that makes the whole thing so frustrating. So I can't get a haircut in Santa Clara County, but I can get a haircut in San Mateo County. That kind of thing is taking place all over. Yeah. There's the inconsistencies I think, which are making people confused and disillusioned perhaps, but a heavy-ish lockdown in California, not so heavy in Arizona, Republican governor. And in, in Arizona, there's open discussion about the effect on the economy and the need for the economy to get going again. Same here, New Zealand's socialist government, heavy, one of the heaviest lockdowns in the world. And now, you know, incredibly, I don't know, this has reached your newspapers yet, but the state of Victoria or um, the, uh, the, uh, the Socialist Republic as Victoria, as some people have come to call it, a, a crazy lockdown, including, would you believe, a curfew, now currently from 9 to 5 a.m. So what you're seeing, I guess, is this... Um, I don't want to over-dramatise it, because you've got to be careful about how you use your language, but you, you are drawn to the idea that there's a sort of totalitarian instinct that's coming to the surface. Yes, yes. Yes, this is, and by the way, I share everything you're saying, even the queasiness that I feel about talking about it, because if you describe what is taking place and do just that and add only a little bit of what is, I think, a normal response to it, who are these people? What is the statutory authority? Originally, months ago, there was a reasonable plan. It was that we were going to bend the curve so that hospitals weren't overwhelmed, that took place, the lockdown continues. What is the rationale now exactly? This is a, 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 a direct and massive intrusion in civil liberties. What you may do, where you may go, where do your children get to go back to school? And now, as you and I have both experienced, censorship about what we may say. So if you just list that kind of sketch of reality, what's actually taking place, you sound like you're hysterical. You, it's almost impossible to describe this without opening yourself to the charge yeah. of overreaction or hysteria or being emotional about, well, I am actually, at this stage, I am pretty emotional about it, and that emotion all runs t- toward anger. But yes, yes, I, I, I agree with every bit of that. Um, 
the contrasts here. Now, I've been in California, partly because travel has become very hard. I've been in California through the whole lockdown. I haven't left the state. Indeed, I've barely left my home. I can't go into my office. Stanford University remains substantially closed. So I've been here through the whole lockdown. So I haven't traveled to other states. But of course, I've been reading about it. And in Florida, Florida, as best I can tell, is as good a counterexample as you can get because there's a Republican governor there called Ron DeSantis, who's really smart and really well-spoken. So not only is he doing what strikes me as the right thing, he's holding press conferences in which he's articulate enough to explain why he's doing what he's doing. And he's able to explain this study, that study, the data shows this, the data shows that. He, for example, in Florida, the school, he has uh, permitted, he's given quite a lot of deference to county officials. So throughout this long period, certain counties did lock down for a time, but Florida as a whole remained open. For example, here's the kind of thing that, that's very, that's rough for a Californian to hear. Disney World, which is in Florida, is open social distancing, they're using masks and so forth, but people are able to go have vacations at Disney World and go on the rides and see the wild animals. And the Disney Corporation is making money there. And in Anaheim, California, which is, which is Disney, excuse me, Disney World, Disneyland is in Anaheim. It's the old original Disney theme park. That's still shut down. And there are thousands of people who work at Disney land and a big corporation that's in the investment portfolios of one retirement uh, mutual fund after another. People's well-being is locked up. Not, it's not, we're not talking about salvation and redemption. We're just talking about a large successful economic entity that provides jobs and income and it's shut down. And the latest figure I heard was that the Disney people were saying, that they, they're the, the closure of Disneyland has so far cost the company $100 million. That, of course, is not even taking into account the thousands of people who work there who've, who've lost their jobs. And on and on it goes. Before we close, we, we've got to go back to the man who some people say have caused all this disruption in our life, and, and that's Donald Trump. Let's, let's just ask the question straight up. Are, is Donald Trump still going to be president in January next year? This is a head and heart problem, Nick. My head tells me that the polls have been what they've been for so long and that the Trump campaign hasn't got quite the bounce out of what I thought was a brilliantly effective Republican convention that I suppose, I suppose if I had $100, I would bet it on Biden. By the way, if I had $100,000, I'd still bet $100 on Biden. On the other hand, we have, we're in the final sprint now. Here, here's what's still to come. Debates, Trump, I watched Trump give um, at a rally speech that he held yesterday, a rally he held yesterday in Wisconsin. He's relaxed, he's energetic, he's enjoying himself. I believe voters, I was an old Reagan hand, I believe voters respond to a man who actually is enjoying himself and relaxed. And it seems to me that events, the arguments, I believe, of course, I believe the arguments are on his side 
in as much as he's had remarkable achievements in foreign policy, these new peace agreements between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain, standing up to China, helping to usher in a bipartisan consensus that China, we need to stand up to China. This is huge. If you can affect a sea change like that in public opinion, that's an enormous accomplishment. And before the coronavirus hit, the economy was doing beautifully and particularly underprivileged Americans, African-Americans, Hispanics, the unemployment rates were the lowest in something like half a century. That guy, you know, his Twitter feed bothers me as much as it bothers anybody. And I wish he'd settle down and pull his thoughts together before he began speaking. I, again, as a Reagan man, I prefer some a, a, a text to think through and for a president to stay with a text. Okay, that's his personality is a separate matter. But what he accomplished is genuine by cutting taxes, rolling back regulations, all of that. So I believe he has the arguments on his side. It feels to me as though events are also on his side. It feels to me as though events are going to tend to erode Biden's position and help Trump's position. And here's what I have in mind, uh, two items. One is that these riots, so-called protests have really become riots. The violence at this stage is undeniable and Biden hardly knows what to do about it because he's got one wing of the Democratic, Democratic Party is in some ways two parties really and he's stuck trying to hold it together. There are so-called centrist Democrats, the Bill Clinton Democrats, the, what, the kind of Democrat Joe Biden used to be. And then of course you've got this hard left cadre, <coughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and so forth. If he condemns the violence in an unambiguous, straightforward way, the hard left people actually think it's justified. I mean, it, they really truly do. He'll get crosswise of the element in his own party where all the energy is. And yet all the polls indicate that more and more ordinary Americans, including African-Americans, where Donald Trump is polling much better than any Republican in several decades, the numbers bounce around a little bit, but the overall trend is that he's polling well there, are deeply disturbed by this violence. And the second is that this coronavirus, again, the numbers are complicated. There's a spike in the Midwest and so forth. The infection rate, though, whatever happens to the infection rate, the death rate is very low and seems to be coming down. And the economy in much of the country, California as usual, may be an outlier, but Donald Trump won't carry California anyway. People will begin to feel the animal spirits of a returning economy. They'll begin to feel hopeful again. And I believe that bodes well for Donald Trump. As difficult as many people find him to take, he in this case is the candidate of hope and Joe Biden is the candidate who's running against Trump and has almost nothing else to run on except this hard left platform. So Biden is up in the polls. He's been up in the polls for months and they're not moving. There's some motion, some tightening, but the polls don't seem to be moving. So I suppose I'd say if anybody in Australia wants to bet, bet a little bit on Biden, but you know, this is not over and events, I believe, are moving Trump's way. Well, thank you for that assessment. And uh, thank you for your, your weekly assessment on the Ricochet podcast, by the way. Those conversations have become must listen to for me right now because you get such a good feeling of what's going on across that country. And uh, Nick, um, we record so those things. We record those things at 
Friday morning Pacific time. I'm afraid that's the middle of the night for you, but I'll, if you're willing to get out of bed and talk to us in your pajamas, at some point we're going to want you on as a guest to report on the, the report from Australia. I'd love to. I mean, my ambition was once to, be, to come down those famous Michael Parkinson steps and uh, be welcomed by Michael Parkinson. Now my ambition is to go onto the Ricochet podcast. Peter, thank you very much for, for joining us and uh, just thank you. I hope we can talk to you again. Oh, a pleasure, of course. Thank you, Nick. You've been listening to the Menzies Research Centre podcast from Sydney, Australia. If you'd like to join the growing number of people who are supporting our work, you can do so by going online and becoming a subscriber from just $10 a month. MenziesRC.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening.